Hello, this is John Bueri, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. In this podcast, I sit down with Dr. Rafael Bostic, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Dr. Bostic answers the question we're all asking, what is a Federal Reserve Bank and what does it do? It turns out they're pretty important, having a role with setting interest rates, maintaining cash in circulation, and its mission as a steward of local economies. We talk about how the bank is a resource for local communities and local businesses, and how those communities can benefit from working with the bank. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us about your experience in community. But what is the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, and what does it do? Like, let's just start at the top. Uh, you know, it's interesting. When, when I talk about the Fed, people have no idea what we actually do. Right. And you know, the reality is that um, if you've seen Hamilton, that is a representation of that argument that they were having about a central bank. We are the byproduct of that. So remember in the old days, they were arguing about should the bank be super centralized in Washington or should it be decentralized out in the states? And I had back and forth. There were two banks of the United States uh, that were chartered. Both of them were allowed to expire and then were not rechartered. And so through the 1800s, we did not really have a consistent central bank for the United States. In the late 1890s into the 1900s, there were a number of crises and the lack of a unified approach to banking was a problem. So uh, they came and did a, a compromise. We're going to do a little centralization and a little decentralization. So the Fed, the central bank, is really a blend of two types of organizations. There's a centralized organization in Washington that's called the Board of Governors. Uh, Jay Powell is the chair of the, the board, and um, that's seven people, and they are appointed by the president. Then, in addition, there are basically private institutions called reserve banks, and there are 12 of them. And each reserve bank represents a uh, part of the United States. So I'm in Atlanta, we're the sixth district, uh, and so we have Florida, Georgia, Alabama, the bottom half of Mississippi, the bottom half of Louisiana, and the eastern two-thirds of Tennessee. So it's a large district. It's really diverse. So I have Appalachia. I have the Gulf Coast. I got energy, oil drilling. I've got military. I have Miami and the beaches. Right, so you think about that. It's a huge area and incredibly diverse. And when you think about uh, the U.S. economy, uh, my district is one-sixth of the U.S. economy. And, and that's how they're divided by... The economy, or well, I'll get to that in a second. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, just, just so, but I'm one sixth the economy, and it is actually a microcosm of the U.S. economy. So the distribution of our economic activity in the sixth district almost matches perfectly with the distribution of economic activity across sectors, say manufacturing or tech or whatever that you would see in the U.S. So the sixth district is really a, a real nice snapshot of the U.S. So if I can get a sense of that. Uh, then I feel like I have a good sense of what's happening in the country. And I know we'll talk a little yeah. more about that. So anyway, you got 12 districts. And each of those districts has, has a reserve bank. And the reserve bank has members. So the state member banks in those districts are members of the reserve bank. And they have shares, and they appoint members to a board. We actually, we have elections for members of the board of directors. And so I report to a board of directors for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. 
And that is made up, that board of directors is people from other banks that are members of the Federal Reserve. Well, there are not, I have nine board members. Okay. Three of them are bankers. Six of them come from businesses around the district. Because we want, we want is the board to be representative of the economic activity of the district. Got it. So some of it is banking, but you know, on my current board, I have someone who works at UPS, someone who works at, in restaurants, someone who does housing development nationally and internationally, and then I have a small business person who does tech. So we try to, we try to set it up so that it's a real diverse set of viewpoints and perspectives. So when we're talking about economic performance, we're getting input from people from the wide range of different perspectives. So that's how it's set up, but what does it do? So we do a number of things. So first is monetary policy. That's the part of the Fed that people are most familiar with. That's uh, controlling um, the rate of interest that banks are paid in very short-term lending. Now we call that the Fed funds rate. And um, what we do there is we adjust the, 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 the rate that banks pay us for these short-run loans. And that rate is a benchmark from which banks then charge all the other interest rates. So they want to charge a margin over that so that they're getting some return. And so by, doing, by raising it, that means that they're, they're, the things they're going to lend out into the future are going to have higher interest rates, which will put a, a constraint on the economy. By lowering it, um, that's stimulative. That the interest rates that you get for your loans are going to be lower. So there's a committee called the Federal Open Markets Committee, or FOMC, that sets the Fed funds rate. And we go to Washington every six to eight weeks, and we vote on it. We have a whole set of deliberations in the vote. Now, the FOMC is made up of the seven governors who are appointed by the president, and then the 12 presidents of the Reserve Bank. So there are 19 members of the FOMC. Now, at any one time, even though there are 19 members, only 12 vote. The seven DC appointees always vote. The New York Fed president always votes, and that was done because the New York Fed president oversees these large banks. Right, that's a big banking center, they're gonna have a lot of, of insight. And then they divide the other four votes among the 11 presidents. So I share, for example, Atlanta, I share a seat with St. Louis and Dallas. And you rotate? And we rotate. So every year, one of us has it. So I had it in 2018, I will have the vote again in 2021. Chicago and Cleveland, they share one. And then, you know, so, so at any time in the voting, it's seven uh, board members who are called governors from DC, and then five bank presidents who are the voters. Is this designed to be complicated? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, and, and in fact, it's designed to really reflect the blend that I was talking about to start. Mm -hmm. This blend of federal versus state level and to try to have some balance and, some, and to make sure that input comes from all over the country. Because you know, we in the, in the reserve banks, we have much closer relationships with the businesses and the banks um, in our areas than folks in Washington will. So we do come with some specialized information that can help inform our decision making. And, and so that's the, the monetary policy. So that's monetary policy. Then the Fed is also a bank supervisor and a, a regulator. So um, we are responsible for making sure that 
the banks that we oversee, which are, which are banks that have state charters and have agreed to be members of the Federal Reserve System, our charge is to make them make sure they're operating in a safe and sound way and that they're lending responsibly. And that's a function that is, uh, it resides, the, the authority resides in DC, but the board there has delegated the implementation to examiners in the reserve banks. So I have, I think, three, 350 examiners wow. who go around our district examining banks. And they set up an exam, they pull files, they see what the lending standards are, they see if banks are exposed too much in, say, real estate or in multifamily lending or oil investment. And then we make some assessments about their, how strong and resilient they are, right? So in 2007, were there examiners out there? I mean, that's the... Yes, there were. And, and, what, and I know you were not in the position, and I'm not asking you to I'm criticize... I'm glad you yeah. clarified yeah, that. Yeah, I'm no. not asking you to criticize your predecessors, but would this process theoretically catch some of that? Uh, it should have. So, yeah. so uh, in the Great Recession, right. there were more bank failures in the 6th District than anywhere else. Okay. Right. Much of it was um, tied to real estate. And um, there was some, let's just say, different, differing opinions about what kind of concentrations a bank could have in real estate that would be prudent and safe. And some people thought, the, the people who carried the day at the time were willing to see banks be more concentrated in that than it turned out was prudent and safe. So right. does that change the way you look at it? It totally changes yeah. the way we look at it. And it changes the way we've, we've approached it. You know, one of the things that you know, I've said many times in this role is that I, don't, I never want to be 12th out of 12 again. I don't, I don't want to be the worst in that performance. And so I've really encouraged my staff, if they see something that makes them nervous, they need to bring that up early and work with the banks to, uh, to come to an agreement on you know, is this really okay? What kind of risk are you really taking on? And have that engagement early enough so that mitigation can happen and adjustments can happen so that we don't wind up in a situation where if something goes badly, um, these banks are gonna go under. Right. Right. So we've, we've really tried to step up our direct person-to-person -person, uh, communication with the banks. And I actually talk to a lot of bankers from my district now. So. Um, the biggest banks in the district, I meet with their leadership you know, three or four times a year. Uh, in Atlanta, they come to Atlanta, and then I talk routinely or regularly with smaller groups of bankers when I go into the field, or we host some conferences periodically. So I try to get in front of them. I try to um, have some relationships with them because it's never good that when your first conversation with someone is... We're shutting you down. Yeah. Right. Or you've got to stop doing this lending. How many banks do you have as part of your membership? So that's a good question. And um, I don't have the exact number for you. A range. Are we talking hundreds, thousands? It's probably in the 800 to 900. Okay. It's a manageable number. Right. Most of, them are, most of them are small banks. Right. This right. One so branch, two branch style. And in small towns. Okay. Right. So if you look at the 6th District, most of it is not big cities. So there'll be maybe a community bank in, in uh, Tifton, Georgia, or like, these small right, towns, right. Meridian, Mississippi, okay. or 
Um, and did you know those places before you got there? Absolutely not. Okay. Right, so <laughs> so uh, let's get back to, to that diversity of your district, because you also have, my, you said Miami? I have Miami, you yeah. Have New Orleans? I have New Orleans. So you have Miami, New Orleans, Orlando, I mean, all the big cities that are in your district. I have Nashville. Right. Um, we'll come back to that in just a minute. So you, you're doing monetary policy, you're doing... Um, bank. Bank. Regulation, uh, regulation supervision. supervision. Third thing we do is payments. The Fed writ large, as an institution, is really heavily integrated in the payment space. So first, every dollar is a Federal Reserve note. Right. So we are responsible for getting cash into the system. Physical cash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happens is that when banks feel like they need cash, they put an order into whichever Federal Reserve Bank they, they uh, uh, engage with, and then we prepare the order. They send a Brinks truck, we put the cash in the Brinks truck. But you're not printing cash, just to clarify. We do not print, right? right. That's so the mint. That's, that's Bureau and Engraving yeah. in Washington. Right. I think they do all of it at this point. And um, no, but, so we, we actually call them and say, this is kind of what we're going to need. And then we manage with, we have an interaction with the banks. Wow. And so. so how much cash? You have a vault? Uh, yeah, we have some money. Yeah. We'll, just, <laughs> we'll okay. just leave it at that. Do you, have, you, have you noticed, is there a trend? This is a personal privilege, right? Asking this totally unrelated to our topic at people using less cash? So it's interesting. Right? Uh, no. No? So the demand for cash has actually doubled since 2010. Really? Yes. And, you know, there's been some analysis to this, and some of it is going overseas. So... Um, you know, the dollar is still viewed as a currency that is retaining its value. And so if you think about Venezuela, where inflation is going crazy, people have value. They'd love to get it transferred into a greenback because it, it will be secure right. and they will preserve their position. Interesting. Uh, and so we, we're definitely seeing some of that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the cash isn't going away anytime soon. Now, I know you young people... Uh, <laughs> are in a place where you don't really use cash nearly as much, but it is, um, it is still around, it is still being demanded, and, and we have that as an operation. So from where you sit, just to follow this trail a minute, you know, there's movement for restaurants and other retail establishments to not take cash. We do, you know, for the safety of our employees, we do not accept cash. I don't know if you've seen that in your district, but it's happening here in, in Los Angeles. Is that something that you're aware of and what does that what does that mean from your perspective as a keeper of cash and as sort of a, someone who looks at payments right and, and physical dollars yeah so I'm not seeing that per se what I would say is you know I'm agnostic on how people want to pay okay. however you want to do it that's fine the thing in this area that makes me a little concerned is that there are still lots of communities and subcultures in the United States where cash is how they operate right and if you go too heavily into this, I mean, we aren't using cash, you may be disadvantaging the, the people in those groups and from those communities from being able to take advantage of services right. and the like. So, you know, I've been um, of a mind recently to think differently about financial inclusion. Like usually it's been about, you know, are, are people, do people have bank accounts? Right. Underbanked areas. Right, like or unbanked or the branches out there. Um, but I'm now starting to think, well, you know, let's not forget about the people who like, who prefer to use cash. And are we tilting things so heavily against them that they are now going to be inconvenienced? And I, so it goes back to where I said to start, which is agnostic. Right. We should make sure that our systems can accommodate people however they want to, to wow. 
pay for whatever they want to pay for. Do you carry a lot of cash? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, you know, I, no, I don't. But <laughs> I, I always carry, well, I'm not going to talk about <laughs> that. That's okay. <laughs> so, personal. So, we, so we have cash. Okay. Then um, there's wholesale payments. And, you know, we call it wholesale. Most people think about it as wire transfers. Mm. So the Federal Reserve has a function called Fedwire, or service called Fedwire, where um, we have the hardware, the actual rail, that wire transfers go over. So if you do a wire transfer, right. there's a good chance you're using Federal Reserve infrastructure to Phys execute Physical it. infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So, And you maintain that? The Fed does. The That's Fed run out of the New York Fed. Okay. Then we have retail payments. So retail payments is basically all the complicated pay things that happen in a retail space. And the thing that's interesting with that is, say, when you go to the Target, right, and you give a credit card or, or debit card, you're basically saying, I authorize Target's bank to take money out of my account that may be in a different bank. Right. So if your bank, if you both have the same bank, that process is straightforward right. because the, the one bank controls both of them. If it's in two different banks, now you have to find a way to clear it and settle it over time. The Fed has an infrastructure that facilitates that as well. We're not the only one, right. but we are an important uh, provider of that service. So, you know, I tell people all the time, the Federal Reserve touches you every day. And you don't even know it. And people have no idea. And on some level, that's a good thing right. because it means that it's working and it's going well. But on another level, it can be difficult because people don't really appreciate the value of the institution. Right. And I think that um, it's important for people to understand the value that we are providing. So I try to talk about this. So that's the third thing we okay. do. Fourth thing we do. How uh, many things are there? Uh, 57? No. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> well, we'll get to like five, okay. maybe six. I'll, I'll lump a bunch of them in the last <laughs> one. Um, the fourth thing we do is, is called community and economic development. And now you're speaking my language. And um, you know, there. This grew out of uh, an act called the Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA. And um, it really, the CRA said that we have the banks have. Actually, the CRA doesn't say it like this. The CRA says that it's important that that banks are reinvesting capital from their communities in back into those communities, and it charges the regulators to set up a structure to check to make sure banks are doing that. And so that's what we do. So as part of that, what we realized was that it's important to really understand what's going on in these communities, to know what a good investment looks like, to figure out sort of how communities can best use their capital. So every Reserve Bank and the board in DC has a unit that does that. And that's our community economic de development unit, others called community affairs, and we have different names, but that's kind of the function. And so uh, we do a lot of that. And so we have a relationship with people in communities. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a relationship with bankers and funders to try to really encourage um, the, the, uh, an appropriate type of uh, investment in communities. And you know, I, I would say it's important to, for everyone to know the Fed doesn't do lending, right? We don't, we don't, we're not market facing that way. But we do have expertise and we have a large network that can be leveraged to help people understand where there are some real good opportunities for investment and where we might have a different appreciation for things than, um, than might have been conventionally thought. 
do you oversee the CRA for your member banks? In part of that supervisor role and regulation role? So, because um, I know they have reporting requirements. For they CRA. do. Um, many of the CRA, so yes, but many of the, the community based enforcement mechanisms are now at the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. Right. I think it's the Bureau of, fin of Consumer Financial Protection. Um, and so it's, a, it's kind of a, a split function. So we have staff that do CRA exams. Uh, and um, the CRA exam is also in partnership with like fair lending things and uh, truth in lending and all those kind of things. So it winds up being uh, a, um, a layered sort of oversight okay. moving forward. So that's big though, community economic development. That means you need to know the people you're, mm -hmm. you're now, now You have to know <coughs> the district well enough to be able to have expertise to be that role. Right, and there are many different approaches to doing that. Um, for, for me, what I thought would be useful, actually when I got to the bank, um, they had decided that the best way to approach that would be to have subject matter experts. Okay. Have an expert in housing, an expert in, in uh, community development financial institutions. When you say expert, someone who's done it a long time or someone who's an academic who's studied it? Um, more research. Okay. Uh, and you come but, from an academic background. Right, and what, 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 what has been interesting, um, I think because of where the Fed sits, you'll get people who are actually both. Okay. Right? So we've actually, in our bank, we have a Center for Workforce and Economic Opportunity. Those are people who, and the center's focus is really on uh, job retraining, skill building, and those sorts of things. Uh, we just hired someone who um, is, has done it before, uh, and also has the academic chops. Right? So one of the things I think that we can do well is be that bridge between you know, the hardcore academics and the hardcore practitioners to be able to speak both their languages and, and really facilitate learning being transmitted to the group that, that needs to do it. So we try to do that as much as possible. And is that something that had been done previously or something that you sort of brought to the, to the space? You've been there for about three years. You yeah, said. about three years. Yeah, so, so we had done that. You know, what I've tried to do is say, um, we need to be more aggressive and assertive in making sure our knowledge gets to, to decision makers. Right, so the Fed is really good about having conferences. Right. Everyone comes to the Fed, yeah. we have great conversation. There's a report. And then everybody goes and does right. what they do. And there's not, there's not that infrastructure that we have to do follow-up to say, you know, when you were here in Jackson, Mississippi, you said you had this problem. We talked about this solution. You know, how's it going? <laughs> or how's it going? But, but more, more than that, here's the toolkit oh. to do what you need to do. Here's the playbook. So we, you've done everything but the play, had been doing everything but the playbook. You had the conversation. Or had the playbook. Well, we also. may have had the playbook. And it just doesn't but get we just, we just put it on the, on the shelf. So we're really trying to be much more engaged and active. So we're, we're bolstering our team to That's have great. a number of outreach professionals who are expert at dealing with communities as they're wrestling with issues. Right. So some of those have actually worked in government before at the local level, at the county and state level. And so they're familiar with some of the challenges and the, the, those, those tension points that you're going to have to fight through in order to get things rolling. 
And so that's under the community and economic development. I'm, I'm gonna come back to these, so we got what's number five? And number five is just general outreach. General outreach. So as I go around, one of the things that I do, you know, I give speeches on the state of the economy. I talk to businesses so I can understand kind of what they're seeing in terms of challenges and opportunities and what, what worries them. Uh, I talk to community to members. Um, I talk to, I often go to universities or, or schools to talk about economics as a profession. I try to, to, in these visits, see something interesting, an interesting plant. So I've gone to a tire plant and seen how automation is being deployed. And this outreach is actually very important for me to get a better sense of what's happening. So this is, this is you've come from, you know, your, your trajectory was education to be an economist. You worked in the federal government, you worked at universities, mm -hmm. and now you're sort of taking all that experience and putting it into this very specialized role, because there's only 12 of you. Only 12 of us, yes. Yeah. So it's, and I'm sure, I don't know, was this ever a, dr a job you thought, oh, I'm gonna be a presidency of a Fed, Never. local Fed? Never, this is, you know, my first job out of graduate school and after I got my PhD was at the board in DC, um, but I didn't think I would really have a future, a long future there. And so I was there six years and then came to academia at the University of Southern California, um, never thinking I would ever return back to the, federal, the Fed family, right. as it were. Um, but it's been a real pleasant surprise. I've, um, I feel like I've grown into it well. It feels very comfortable. And it's, um, it's been a lot of learning. So, so with, with all this work, you know, you're doing a lot of, I, I look at what you said, the Fed, at least at the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, you, you've got your policy and your regulation and your supervision. Um, and then there's this um, uh, function of payments that's more uh, Right, and the retail payments, right. we actually run out of Atlanta for the whole country. Okay. So that's ours, so I have a bunch of folks who do that. So anybody that's paying by credit card somewhere at a retail restaurant or store. It's a good chance it's, they it's, are going through, that settlement that's happening through our, wow. our infrastructure. Um, and then there's this other, so there's this, I, I look at three buckets. You've got your sort of internal operations, your sort of the hidden consumer facing piece. They don't see it, but you're working with the people. And then you've got your engagement, outreach, mm -hmm. community economic development. How do you do it? I mean, you've got, let's talk about this district. This district is huge. We've talked about big cities, small hamlets, if you will, or towns. Mm -hmm. um, there is that, like every part of the country, there's, you have extreme wealth and you have extreme poverty. Your job isn't, or, or is it, about lifting everyone out of poverty? Is it about economic growth or is it about fair uh, economics, right? Do you see the difference there? So here's, here's um, kind of where I, how I think about yeah, it. Yeah, how do you think about it? Yeah, the Fed, we are stewards of the economy. Right, our, uh, we have two mandates. One is uh, stable prices. And the idea there is that if, if people are gonna invest in something that's gonna take five years to finish, they wanna have a good idea that they know what the price is gonna be five years from now. Right. right? And if prices are bouncing around a lot, then their, their confidence in that estimate is gonna be lower. And it means that that will make it less likely that they invest. And so we want people to be able to do long-term planning because that's how you become, how you maintain productivity, increase it, do important investments so your company can function. The second mandate is um, maximum employment. And what I say is you, I prefer maximum sustainable employment because I don't think we should be pushing it too hard and then 
having the economy overheat so that we have some kind of rebound in, the, in a bad direction. And so what I, I see our role as trying to accomplish both of those and um, going to these communities is really, to my mind, more about the second of those functions. Yeah. Right? And so if we want to maximize um, employment in a sustainable way, we need to make sure that there are opportunities that are available to anyone who wants to uh, build skills or pursue something that is going to make them marketable in the labor market, either by producing or by being a worker or however they want to do it. And so for me, I see a lot of my uh, going around the country to understand what the barriers are, to see where there's potential, and to make sure that um, everybody is understanding the economy in the same way. You know, one thing that I've seen going around is that um, there are, there's not one U.S. economy, right? So you know, if, if GDP growth is, what, two and a half, three percent, in some neighborhoods, it's actually 6%. So around where my bank is located, there are cranes all over the place, new buildings, offices going up. That's actually, it's growing really fast. When I go to some smaller towns that used to have factories that have now closed, it may be 0%. Right. Right. And it kind of balances out to three. But when you talk to them, when you see their experiences, um, for me to talk about, if I go to in one of these small places, the economy as if it's 3%. They look at me like I'm crazy, like you're out of touch. And so, uh, you know, we uh, last year for our annual report talked about one district, many economies. And the idea that um, for us to be maximally effective, we need to make sure that when we go talk to people, we are talking to them where they are. Well, I mean, it's the old adage in local politics where I come from, you know, all politics is local, right? It's on the street corner. What ha matters to one neighborhood, even if you go just half a mile, a mile away, it's totally, totally different. And the same is true if you look at your lens. When you're in even just state by state, you're going to have different perspectives and economy. Um, and so you have to balance. How do you balance that then? I mean, because you do, I mean, how many, do you know how many people are in that district? I mean, millions. I haven't known that. It's millions. Millions, right? Millions and millions. Yeah, millions, millions. I mean, Florida is a huge <coughs> state. You know, New Orleans is a huge city. Um, so how do, you, okay, how do you wrap your head around that? So you're coming in from su mostly your career has been in Southern California, some in D.C. Uh, as well. Uh, how do you come in and say, hey, I'm going to help you understand this economy. That's my job. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help build sustainable employment and stabilize prices over here. But for, for our intents and purposes, how do, you, how do you approach that? What's your, you show up three years ago. Hey, everybody, I'm here. <laughs> they didn't pick, they, the communities didn't pick you. You were given to right. them. How do you how do you start to build trust? Because you're an outsider. Yeah. So you know, one of the things I've tried to do is leverage the relationships of my staff. So I'm the only one who's a new person. Okay. And many of the folks in the field that work for the bank are have been there for years. And so when we do these visits, what, one of the things we try to do is give me opportunities to have smaller meetings. So not just the big luncheon yeah. uh, talk for the keynote speech for 350 yeah. people. Yeah. But we try to always do like a business round table where we get eight to 12 business people mm -hmm. and we can have a much more person to person and direct conversation. Uh, we try to do the same thing with elected officials and community members. So in these trips, you know, I'm actually trying to form relationships with people. 
and also get them to understand that I'm committed to help them do the things they want to do. You know, one of the things that I've been um, very um, sensitive to is the fact that locals don't want people from some other place coming in and telling them what to do. <laughs> right. And they don't want that. And I get that. So how do you help them? How do you show that you can help them? So we ask them what they want to do. Okay. Um, and you know, we can have a conversation and say, well, you know, we have seen in other places you know, some of these things that you're asking for. We know how this is done. Others, you can't do this unless you have these other building blocks in place. And so we should think about that. And we try to um, uh, like shepherd a conversation that gets us to a place where uh, we get some good ideas about what those first steps need to be or those next steps need to be to accomplish them toward their goal. And how do you, let's identify this, these are the next steps. How do you make sure you do it? So we're, we don't have um, that kind of oversight authority. Right, so what we do um, typically is, you know, we might say, okay, for what you want to do, we don't have that expertise in-house, but we know six, six organizations that can do this. We'll give you their names, call them, okay. work with them, see where you can get to. Um, but we really do uh, see ourselves as a partner for locals, but not a replacement for locals. Right, okay. Right, so if the locals, they have to decide they want to do it, the leadership, and that could be public sector, it could be private sector, it could be nonprofits. In many places in my district, um, it's a blend. Right. Like the leadership is, the, the doers are, are blended, uh, appear across all the sectors. That's where you're most successful, when you have that blend. I mean, typically, that's, that's typically that seems that, that that's kind of how it works. And so, um, so we really try to make it easy for people. But if people don't want to do it, we can't make them do it. Right. So, and that's our challenge. So give me ex uh, excess, ex uh. Can you give me a success story? Where, give me a specific that you saw people come together, you made the connection, and you did your job the best you could with the, you know, that you're not in, you can't tell them what to do. And what was the outcome? Well, uh, or you in know, process, I mean. I yeah, so all the, everything's in process. Right. But, but here's an example. So, you know, one of the things that I had been working on here in Los Angeles, was a professor before I took yeah. the job, was this intersection between health and economic development. And the idea that um, for people's health, it's often the case that um, the things that are keeping them from being healthy have nothing to do with direct health care. It has to do with other things. The quality of your housing, is it drafty or, or does it have mold or stress because there's crime on the streets or, or whatever it is, right? And those things are called social determinants of health. And typically, the funds used to address social determinants of health are not healthcare funds, hmm. right? And so, you know, I, I've seen some estimates that would suggest that 80% of a person's health is in the social determinant space, but if all the health money can only be used for the 20%, then you're, you're kind of gonna work extra hard to get those people healthy. Right. And so we have been working with a series of hospitals in Atlanta talking about this. And it's been a multi-year process and just uh, not too long ago, um, they seven hospitals signed a pact acknowledging that housing was an important aspect to health and that they were going to use resources towards housing. Wow. Now, they still have to figure out how that's <laughs> right. going to play out, but that they were willing to sign something publicly acknowledging um, an important reality 
and we shepherded the meetings. So the thing happened at our bank, the signing happened at our bank. We had been involved in these conversations. That's exactly the sort of thing that we want to do. That's amazing. And, and what's, the, what's the prediction? What does that look like in the future? Does it get replicated in other places? Does that group become, uh, you know, do they actually build housing? What do, what do you think? So I have, into your crystal ball. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I, my, my guess is that um, they will uh, establish some sort of fund that provides bridge financing for certain types of housing or certain stages of housing development um, or even certain types of rehab because there's a lot of existing right. housing. Um, and then we're going to try as much as possible to lift this up and, and convince as many other healthcare organizations to understand this and be willing to step up and do it. And do you stay involved or do you basically launch them and then step back? Um, our goal is to launch them and step back because we don't have hundreds of people. Right. right? So if, if we catalyzed you know, six projects and had to then man each of them or staff each of them, um, then every new project that we catalyze, we need to hire more people. Right, so we're trying to be sort of a, a stimulus mm -hmm. and then hope that it builds enough momentum that it can go on its own. My, my expectation is that in the early stages, we'll have to do some check-ins, but that's being a good partner and walking with people. How about, you know, the work with local mayors, local count, town councils, city councils, county leaders, ward, ward leaders, I mean, everybody's got a different name for their local government. When you come in, those folks oftentimes don't have training in economics. We see that across the country, yep. that uh, decisions about the future of cities are made by people without the formal training or even sometimes without the advice of formal you know, advisors that have formal training. And they're making policies that last generations, whether it's about zoning and what can be built or should be built, or about what businesses should be incentivized to come in or not. Um, or even what should be allowed or not. You know, we've, we've seen in Southern California policies where certain types of businesses are excluded from certain neighborhoods for one reason or another. These are oftentimes policies that are not, um, they're made with best intention. I don't want to criticize the intention of any of our policymakers that they're trying to help uh, the economy, but without, without maybe the background to be able to make those decisions. And it gets even worse when you look at like your planning commissions or planning boards around uh, local municipalities without the training. What do you, do you, do you see that? Am I, because I'm not as familiar with your region as other parts of the country. And number two, how do you, can you overcome that road, roadblock of, of the lack of, not for lack of passion, interest, or commitment to community, but just, you studied for many years to be the expert in the economy that you are. How do we transfer that knowledge? And you talked about that a little bit, but I'd like to hear sort of your perspective on that and what you're working on to, to address it. So I've been working on this for a long time. When I was a professor at USC, uh, we had a training program for ele local electives. And I used to teach a three-hour class on housing policy just to try to ground them. And these are the like mayors, yeah. city council people, right. county commissioners. Right. Uh, just try to ground them and give them a richer understanding and appreciation for the issues. Almost all of them did not know hardly anything that we talked about, uh, but they were open to learning and understanding more deeply those relationships. Uh, in my experience, oftentimes people run for office at the local level because one or two things has pissed them off. And they're like, I'm tired of this, yep. I'm going to run, I'm going to do something about it. And then they realize that 
that job is more than about is about more than just that one thing. Right. And then it's like so now they have to figure out who they're gonna listen to and how and it's a lot. And so so no one who runs or who's present in these things, particularly in the early years are doing it, they're not gonna be an expert on everything they're asked to have an opinion about or make a decision on. And so, you know, one of the things that, um, uh, you know, I think it's very important that um, we continue to engage. And so we have lots of materials online, uh, but I'm really excited about uh, our new engagement effort and outreach because we're gonna wind up touching a lot more people in an action-oriented way. And my hope is that um, those positive experiences, because I'm very confident they're gonna work out well, will start to create sort of uh, a buzz. And people will start talking about it and saying, oh, you know, maybe we wanna do that. Right. Maybe we wanna have people come in and bring some expertise and let us be better. And um, you know, success, is, success breeds copycats. <laughs> and I want as many copycats as possible. So I want us to be successful and, um, and create an expectation that if you engage with our institution, we can help you have conversations and deeper understanding about things than, um, than you would otherwise. And going back to your, you know, we, one of my proudest moments, not my proudest, but one of them, uh, we had, uh, you and I convened a panel, uh, it's gotta be at least four years mm -hmm. ago, on civic literacy, civic engagement. Yes. Uh, when you were the head of the Bedrosian Center on Governance at the Saul Price Policy School at Price USC, School Price, Policy. Price School of Public Policy at, at the University of Southern California, USC. So we're talking about four or five years ago, um, we had this conversation and the conversation was around what stops people from being engaged with uh, their local decision makers. And the question I previously asked you is about sort of a top down, like how do you influence decision makers? Do you have a, a role for educating the public to influence or be engaged in their their future of the economy, right? Because, yes, you've got the small business. What about the consumer, right? There's people who work for a business that are not in the decision-making of whether the plant opens or closes, you know, stays open or closes, um, where they spend their money. Is there a, uh, a consumer-facing component to their work, recognizing millions and millions of people in your district? Um, how does that work? How do, you, how do you engage more just people uh, to be aware and be a part of the solution for a maximize sustainable employment, right? So what we do, we do something that's a little different than sort of where you started. And okay. you know, we try to make sure that consumers know where opportunities are emerging. So you think you take our economy today, right? There's a lot of new technology that's coming in. That technology is disrupting sectors. And what's happening is that a bunch of jobs that used to require people can be done with you know, a fraction of that, the number of people before. But they're also introducing, through this technology, opportunities for new jobs. And so the question is, like, what are the skills, like if you get disrupted, what should you do? Right? How do you find gainful employment that pays a reasonable wage so that you don't need to work four jobs? Right. So we actually have something we call an, uh, an opportunity occupations monitor which is a county level tool that says in your county, these are the jobs that don't require you know, four years of training that you can get maybe through certification um, that will pay you a living wage. Hmm. 
and we basically is, is being refined as we speak. But that, these are the sorts of things where we're trying to put information in the hands of the people who are looking for that. Because right? if you get disrupted out, you may have no idea right. what you could do to have that next chapter of your career. And so we're trying to get that word out, and we build tools like that fairly regularly. Um, and so we're trying to put information in the hands of people so they are empowered to make decisions to move forward. Now that's a little different yeah. than the engaging in the civic enterprise. Um, you know, to date we have been reluctant to be too on the ground activists about political engagement. Right, we're, we're happy, you know, we want to work with the willing and we're not going to spend a lot of energy dragging a whole host of people right. out to the city council meeting. <laughs> right. Right. That's really not our role. Right. Our role is to be invited to the city council meeting and to be perhaps asked to you know, talk about the research on housing or workforce training or whatever, or on the benefits design, design of benefits. Um, and we can do that. Um, Everyone gets to interpret how broad the mandate uh, is and what sorts of activities fit under the umbrella of that mandate. Uh, to date, historically, the Fed has not viewed uh, political engagement as falling neatly into that mandate. And I think that it's useful for us to have uh, a pretty bright line on that mm -hmm. because we are nonpartisan as an institution. Right. Right. And as soon as we start showing up and, and trying to do voter registration, all that kind well, of stuff. Well, I'm not even pushing you that far. Just the idea that the more people know about the economy and the way it works, the more they can be a part of it, right? And I think that's so, what you're saying that you're working right. on. Right. No, that's right. We definitely, yeah. I totally agree with that, for uh, sure. That, that people understand where they spend their money matters. Um, in the, it, and in your region, it's, you know, they're probably not spending out of your district if they're living in your district. And so it's keeping that sort of macro economy going. But if you, if you do all your entertainment and extra spends in other places, what does that mean for your community if no one's spending it there, right? Just the basics of economy. Money coming in from the outside strengthens your local economy yep. versus just circulating what's already there. And those are the kind of things that I think we've, you know, are maybe not as, as prominently aware in general society. Yeah, I think, I think that's, uh, that's a fair statement. You know, I, um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's an interesting question about where people spend their money. So if you buy something from Amazon, right. are you spending it locally? <laughs> right. Are you, are you, or is that somewhere else? Right. Uh, you know, these questions are kind of blurring in a pretty significant way. And these are the sorts of issues and questions we have to uh, wrestle with in thinking about how the economy actually works. Uh, before we, we close, I want to ask you about... Um, uh, the issues around equity, knowing how diverse your district is uh, in terms of wealth and, and poverty. How do you, do you have a role in that this space? You know, as we talk about uh, equitable policies on a number of issues, you know, the accessibility of, uh, of, of jobs is an equity issue. Being able to get to them, transportation becomes an equity issue. Almost everything can be an equity issue uh, as you look at sort of the civil society. Where do you see yourselves fitting in that conversation with understanding you're not pol political, understanding you're nonpartisan? How, what's that lens look like for you as a, as a sort of a, a big, big picture look at the economy? 
So the way I think about it is this. You know, if we're going to get to maximum sustainable employment, we have to make sure every person can be maximally productive. To the extent that we have structures or social norms or, uh, inst or institutions that are uh, weak or unable to deliver services uh, to people, you know, that may not be true. Right? That's, that's kind of the equity lens. Right. We have these, these differences in the ability of particular institutions uh, to provide you with real access opportunity. Um, so we need to push back against those mm. in the name of maximum employment, right? So, so you know, that's, that's yeah. the Fed perspective, but it's really the idea that, you know, the way that we get everyone to their full potential is by have, making sure the institutions are structured to facilitate that. And if they're not, then that's a barrier that's going to prevent us from getting to our maximum sustainable employment. And, you know, I say it like this. You could have institutions today, whatever they are, and say... Maximum employment is five million. Or you could reform these institutions so that more people are actualized and maximum employment is 20 million. Wow. In either case, we would be fulfilling right. the maximum employment mandate. To me, 20 is better than five. Yeah. <laughs> right? So let's get to 20. Let's at least not just accept the status quo. When I, you know, it's interesting. I go around a lot and I hear, I, never get pushed back on the idea that we're not getting maximum productivity out of every person in a community. People know yeah. that there is variation in that, and people know that there are institutional barriers on that. And so, you know, that's not been an area where I've gotten any pushback. And in fact, it's been helpful because the locals hear that the Fed has the same aspirations for them that they do. That we are, we understand where they are, we understand their challenges, and we want to walk with them. And um, that's a message that, you know, I'm trying to say loud and often um, so that people aren't surprised and that they know if they want to try to do something, uh, they can call us and have a reasonable expectation that we will take the call <laughs> and work with them that's great. moving forward. You are a true community partner in that effort. I mean, that's... Uh, it's setting a standard, hopefully, that your tw 11 other colleagues are, are equally uh, as ambitious. Well, yeah. No, so what's interesting, uh, the 12 of us are all really good on this issue. And you know, I think if you took a look at, looked at a collective 12 presidents, we may not have had a, pre a previous 12 that are as committed to this issue That's right. than we have today. And I'm, I'm just privileged to to sort of work with my colleagues on this. And uh, we will together learn um, things that will inform each of our efforts uh, to help our places be better. Great. Well, Rafael, before we leave, before we end, I want to go to our lightning round questions. A couple questions here, just whatever comes to mind, no need to explain, just answer the way that you would. Who is a leader who has influenced you in your work? Yeah, I'd say uh, President Obama. What book has changed the way you think about the role of community in your work? A citizen. Okay. What is a specialty food from Atlanta do you think would do really well here in Los Angeles? Lemon pepper chicken wings. <laughs> nice. Uh, what's the first place you turn to for information when working with a new community? Uh, my staff. Okay. Uh, what advice would you give a 25-year-old you?
Keep your eyes open and keep your head down. What is the best career decision you ever made? To go to USC. Nice. Uh, so far, what has been your proudest professional moment? You know, that's, an, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we go a lot of different ways on this one. Yeah. Um, if I had to pick one, I would say today in my mind is uh, helping to settle the, the Thompson case uh, when I was at HUD. Okay, now you need to, just for those who don't know, explain. <laughs> I, I didn't ask for an explanation, but now I want an explanation. Yeah, so the, you know, the Thompson case was um, a lawsuit that uh, was filed against HUD and the city of Baltimore and the Baltimore Housing Authority. Uh, there was an allegation that the Housing Authority was concentrating all the voucher-eligible units in high-poverty neighborhoods, and that was disadvantaging people. And so that happened in the early 90s before I even got there. Um, there was a consent decree. Uh, the administration that I came in with in, in 2009 decided they wanted to settle whatever was remaining. That one was the last one that they couldn't do. And so I got pulled in. There's a whole story about that. But suffice it to say, it was a lot of hard work. It was... Um, there were many ups and downs, and I wasn't sure we were going to get there. Uh, but we figured out a way to do it. And um, I had to be a pain in the butt for a lot of people, or to a lot of people, I guess. Uh, but we got to a good place, and that program is still going. And um, you know, I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we were able to accomplish that. That's great. Well, thanks, Rafael. I really appreciate you spending time with us talking about your work uh, in the southeast of this country, but also the work you've done across the country at HUD when you're here at uh, USC here in Southern California. Uh, and we're looking forward to what's next uh, with uh, Dr. Rafael Bostek. Thanks so much. John, it's great to see you as always. It's been really been a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence. And for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.